All right, let's move on to um, our series in Ephesians. If you've got a Bible, can you go to Ephesians chapter 4? We've been working through the book of Ephesians uh, for quite a while now. We're getting near the end, uh, slowly um, and surely, and we find ourselves sort of halfway through chapter 4 at the moment. What we've found as we've studied the book of Ephesians over um, the past few months is that the first half of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2 and 3, are very much Paul, the apostle, writing to the church in Ephesus that he had started and that had grown and he had left and gone on to start other churches. And the first three chapters were him outlining uh, doctrinal teachings, foundations of the Christian faith that were very much kind of overarching um, themes about God, about man's positions of God, the fact that God has reconciled man to himself, he's reconciled man to one another, he's created this new community called the church, and that this mystery that has been kind of uh, been hidden in the past has now been made known through the church and Paul as an apostle is to proclaim that and the church is to live that out uh, before the world and so it's very much kind of overarching high level themes that we're meant to understand in our minds and get hold of and grasp and believe but then as you get into chapter 4 it then comes down to earth into practicalities earthly practicalities the kind of well so what do you do with all this information that you've received about what God has done how do we live that out how do we actually work practically day to day Monday morning knowing that I've been reconciled to God reconciled to my fellow man and brought into this community called the church how do I live this out? So Paul ends his letters, chapters 4, 5 and 6, with the practical outworkings of these doctrines that he's laid out. And uh, we're going through it. We see at the beginning of chapter 4 that um, the very first verse there is almost the theme for what comes after it. The very first verse says, um, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So Paul, the point of these chapters is basically you've, God's done something in your life. Live like it. Walk in a manner worthy of what God has already done. So something's already taken place when you became a believer, became a Christian, and now he's saying just, just live in light of that. And that one verse becomes a theme for what's um, coming up. He's given us a plea for unity at the beginning of chapter 4. Actually, despite um, the fact that we all come from different backgrounds, different experiences, um, you've been brought into one kind of man as the church. So we need to be unified together. We've looked at that. Then we've looked, as we went through chapter 4, we found out that actually we're all very different, but that diversity is what brings maturity in us. Because we're all different and we rub up against one another, we learn from one another, we grow from one another, we accept one another, actually that's what matures us in God. Um, and that brings us to this unified whole. So kind of Paul went round the circle in his argument there from unity to diversity to maturity back to unity. And now he's moving on. We've got to um, verse 17. So I'm just going to read from chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught him in, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through um, deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
Okay, Paul now is returning to this image of walking. That very first verse there was about walking the manor. He's come back to this whole idea of walking in something. So there's a practical doing of it, and he begins by starting actually using a negative there, actually. Do not walk like the Gentiles do. You've got to walk, but you need to walk in a different uh, way. And the big idea of kind of what we're going to look at today is you have been saved by God to pursue new ways of living. You've been saved by God to pursue new ways of living. There was an old way, and now there is a new way. Now you're a Christian, now you have come to faith in Jesus, you must pursue a new way in light of what God has done in your life. It comes of what God has done. So there is the past that we've looked at in the first three chapters. God has done a work in your life that is complete. But in light of that, you must now walk in a different way to your old way of life. And Paul has three pictures in this passage that I want to look at. The first one is walking, the second one is schooling, and the last one is clothing. And I want to look at the three of them and how Paul says this new way of life. You need to walk differently, you need to go to school and you need to put on new clothes that we're going to look at. So the first one is walking. Uh, The first verse is there and it says, um, now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as a way the Gentiles do. And what Paul is saying is there was a way you used to walk and I don't want you walking there. Imagine the image of a road that's been travelled and there are those workman barriers up in front of it. There are the flashing hazard lights on it. There are the no entry signs there. The big one that says do not enter. Paul's saying there was a way of life you used to walk but I want you to imagine the barrier in front of it. You do not walk that way. There is a new way that you are to go and that old way is closed off to you. You should imagine it closed, imagine it's finished, look at it and go the other way. And he paints this old way of life in a very negative light, um, kind of to make the point. And he starts there, he says, I insist on this in the Lord, I testify in the Lord. Um, I tell you on the Lord's authority, different translations put that. But he basically is saying, I haven't got a good idea here. It's not something I thought that might work for you. It's actually God has commanded you to do this. So he's insisting on it in the Lord and he's appealing to a higher authority than himself. Although we know he's been appointed by God as the apostle to the Gentiles and to reveal the mystery, he's outlaid all that. He's actually saying, he's going back and saying, God wants you to live this way and not that way. So there is the, um, there is the kind of the, um, it's an admonition, isn't it? It's saying, don't do that. Don't go that way. I insist on it in my Lord's authority and I want you to go this way. And he's, 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 he, he majors on the negative, so it's a whole bunch of bad news. But the idea of bad news is to push you towards what is positive. He's going to go through and he's really going to kind of say, this is what life used to be like with you. And we'll look at it all and it's a pretty horrific picture. But the idea is actually push you, remind you of what he's actually already outlined about the way you should be living. That they've actually, the believers in Ephesus and us as believers now, Paul has already outlined that we have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. We've been adopted into his family as children. We've been declared not guilty before him. We've been raised up from our state. We were dead in our sins to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. We have that kind of position in Christ because of what Jesus has done. And he's saying, this is what you've got. And he's saying, not only that, you've been reconciled to God, reconciled to your fellow man, brought into the church, into one new man. This is what God has got for you. Go that way. And he's going to major on the negative to kind of remind them and push them that way. And it's the first way he says, what was their old way of life like? Three things, their old way of life. Number one, they had no understanding. 
your old way of life, before you knew Jesus, no understanding. He talks about futility of their mind, darkened in their understanding. Interestingly, Paul starts with the mind. He doesn't start with their actions. He doesn't start saying, your old way of life, you did bad things. He actually starts, your old way of life is your, your thinking was wrong. Your thinking is wrong. You had, you, it was futile and you were darkened in your understanding. A darkened room, you cannot see anything. When the light goes on, you can suddenly make everything out. Your, your understanding was darkened. You just didn't know. That futile thinking is pointing towards, um, he's getting at the, the idol worship. Worship of idols was prevalent in that time. You know, there was um, the Temple of the Goddess Artemis and other around emperor worship in the Roman Empire and all sorts of other false gods. And Paul is saying, the, the worship of idols is something that does not bring lasting satisfaction. An idol is anything you put in the place of God in your life. Anything you put in the place of the one true God, the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, in your life is idol worship. And he's saying it's futile thinking to go after that and go after something that doesn't actually bring lasting satisfaction in your life. And we have our modern idols as well. We might look back at, you know, 2,000 years ago and think they were ignorant, you know, uncivilized pagans. But actually, we have our own modern idols in, this, in, our, in our culture today and anything we put in the place of God. And often they're good things, but we put them in the place of God. So the good things become God things and they, they destroy, ultimately destroy us. We have gods of money and power and prestige and career advancement and sex. And even we even put our children sometimes up there. The children become gods that we worship because our life gets poured into them and they become the most important things in our lives, getting the next house, the next job, the next car. And all of them ultimately do not satisfy. And you know that because when the next thing comes, when you've received something, you suddenly realise you want the next one. Everyone here who owns an iPhone, come October, they're going to bring the new one out. And your suddenly super flash phone will become obsolete and you'll suddenly realise... It wasn't the be-all and end-all, I want the next one. You know, just an example. But that's life, isn't it? And all the things that we want just become junk that we sell in a garage sale, you know, in the future. And these are the idols. And Paul just describes that as futile thinking. It's, it's, your understanding is dark, and that's what it was like before you knew Jesus. And you're incapable of grasping the gospel when you're like that. You don't understand it. You've been blinded. And this is then contrasted with, Paul says, the spirit of wisdom in chapter 1, that you've been given as believers. God's given you this so you can understand it. So your old way of life was dark, and don't go back to that futility of thinking, worshipping idols. Follow the way he's given you um, with the spirit of wisdom. He says, so there's no understanding. There's also no life. He says, you've been alienated from the life of God. You are separated from God, and he is the one from whom all life comes. It, Jesus said, I have come that you would have life and have it in its Fullness, have it in its abundance. Have it, and when you, they were in their old way of life, they were spiritually dead, it says in Ephesians 2. You were dead, you had no life. Yes, you're walking around living and breathing, but in a spiritual sense, your life to God did not exist. You were separated from God. You had no future with him. You were, you were ultimately heading for destruction and life away from God in eternity. Because you didn't have got life with God now, you wouldn't have life with God in eternity either. You are lost. And he's saying you've been alienated from the like of God. And this is born out of ignorance. It says um, alienated from God because of the ignorance that was in them. A, a failure to grasp what God had done, a failure to understand it and take note of it and live in light of it, meant they had no understanding and no life. And that was the road they were going down. It was a, they had responded to God by total rejection. 
as Gentiles. Their, their mind, their will, their emotions, everything was against God, their understanding was against God, and as a result, they had no life of them. And they were totally responsible. It says the ignorance was in them. They were completely responsible for their state. And we've looked at this over the weeks, that our state before we became Christians, we were responsible for, and we would have to pay the punishment uh, for our crimes of um, uh, rebelling against the holy God. And then finally, it says they had no feelings, so no understanding, no life, and no feelings, um, which was a result of having no life. Obviously, if you've got no life, you're not going to have any feelings because you're dead. It says they were their hardness of heart. They had become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They had no feelings, no life. Their heart was hard. Their ignorance of God had resulted in a total rejection of God. The hardness of heart, that's just another way of saying that. It's callous. They'd lost all sensitivity. They couldn't feel shame. They couldn't feel embarrassment towards God. They were happy in their life, rejecting God and going away from him. They'd they'd lost all sense of self-control as well when it says um, they'd become uh, callous and given themselves up to a whole whole lot of of things that would offend God. It says in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honour God or give him thanks and they became futile in their thinking, same language, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul's just saying the same thing in another letter. This was your state. And they refused, man refused to acknowledge who God was. And they were in a dark and lost place. And it says, Paul says, they gave themselves up to uh, uh, sensuality, in other words, debauchery there, which is basically throwing off all restraints, a desire to flaunt yourself, you're not affected by fear or shame, you've got no self-respect for, um, regard for self-respect or public decency, it's just pursuing every kind of depraved activity. So there's impurity there as well, that's, just, that's got a wide range of meaning, it just means excessive living, unrestrained sexual behaviour, that whole kind of gambit of actions. And Paul's saying people just gave themselves to that, it says they were greedy as well, there was an insatiable desire um, some translations put a continual lust for more there, just kind of getting that sense of the, what Paul is saying is your, your old way of life, you did things, but you wanted to do more of them. And once you'd done one, you wanted to keep going, keep going, keep going. And the image I can find kind of that sums it up, it's like drinking salt water. You drink salt water to quench your thirst, but what does salt water do? It makes you more thirsty. And so you have to keep drinking it. And then eventually, if you drink too much salt water, it ultimately kills you destroys you. It's a vicious circle. And that's what sin does. Sin, when you're in it, when you're doing things that offend God and do not line up to his moral standard, it becomes a a, a vicious circle that becomes ever decreasing that ultimately spirals into your destruction. Because you know when you get into certain things that you think you're only going to go so far, but once you're in there, the line moves. You know, take something something like bad language or something. You might think, well, I'll just swear a little bit. But once you've sworn a little bit, you've moved the goalposts, and that suddenly becomes normal. And so actually, if you do it a bit more, then actually the goalposts, you're going to actually think, I'm just pushing it around because this is now normal. So when I just step across, this is, I'm only pushing it a little bit. Until that actually then becomes normal. And suddenly, well now I'm scoring lots, and then I, I can push it into all, kind of, all sorts of areas, and I'm only pushing it a little bit, but then that becomes normal, and you suddenly find yourself moving down you know, a line when actually you started here and each step, just, you do it enough it just becomes normal and then you just push yourself on to the next and the next thing and this covers any kind of area that you do it enough it becomes normal and it's fine and then when you, you, you step over the line you only think you're stepping a bit 
but actually you, from where you started you've moved a long way. And Paul is saying the life that they walked was like that and he painted a, he's painted a horrible picture. But that is a life that we all walked before we knew Jesus. And he's saying don't go back to that. Do you understand it? Have you grasped what it was like before God? Because what he's basically given is God's kind of judgment on their own life. That's how God saw it. We might not have seen it like that. We might have thought we were all right until we heard the good news of Jesus. We heard the gospel. We repented. We put our faith in him and we started living a new life. But that's how God saw it. He said you were darkened. You had no understanding, no life, no feelings, nothing. And Paul is saying, don't go back there. And then he moves on to the second image, which follows on, which is the image of a school or schooling, which is one that is very dear to my heart, being a school teacher. That actually, he says, he goes on to say there, and he says, they become uh, every, kind of, um, every kind of impurity, verse 20, but this is not the way that you learned Christ. And he goes on to talk about being taught in him. So the image is a school building, image of a school of being taught something. And Paul is saying, that was your own way of life. It's shocking and horrible. But that's not what you were taught. There's now the contrast. You were taught Jesus, and it's different. When you were proclaimed Jesus, that was, so there was the initial, you heard the good news and responded, but then actually there's the subsequent, you keep learning as you grow as a Christian, you grow as a believer in life. He's saying it's different to that, and you need to learn Christ and get into that and think about being in school. You've heard him, you've taught with him, and you've received instruction in him. Follow that. Follow what God has put in your life there. And it's an interesting thing here. It's actually your, your subject is, is Jesus, but actually your teacher is also Jesus. So at the school, the national curriculum in the school would just have Jesus across the front, but actually the person teaching you would also be Jesus because it's his spirit that it works through leaders, through the word of God that actually teaches you. So we've actually got the subject matter and the teacher is Christ and he is training you and he's training you to welcome him as a living person. It's not just a set of kind of um, abstract teachings, philosophies, um, rules that we follow and that will be alright. Actually, it's welcoming a living person. The key to the Christian faith is Jesus is alive. He, he died, yeah, but then he just beat everyone by coming back again, rising from dead, ascending to the heaven where he rules and reigns with his Father and one day will return to judge all mankind. And so Jesus is alive. So we're learning about a living person. A person who walked and did all the things it says in the Bible. And then, but he died, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And interestingly, Paul kind of puts there, at the end of verse 21, he talks about Jesus, and it's the only time in Ephesians where it doesn't have anything added to it. Not Lord Jesus, not Christ Jesus, not Jesus Christ. It's just Jesus. And so that's unusual for him. But what he's driving them back to is actually the historical Jesus. Jesus was a man who lived and walked the earth. God came to earth as a man. He was born as a baby from a virgin, grew, um, did all the teachings he did, arrested, crucified, died, buried, risen, ascended. And he's pointing back to the historical Jesus. There was a real man called Jesus. He did the things he did. People met him. People met him and they taught him, they wrote the New Testament down. People met the risen Christ, sometimes 500 at one time. Paul himself met the risen Jesus, gave him his commission to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So he's pointing back to historical facts. And even though we're removed by hundreds, thousands of years from the actual event, there's still historical facts. There's still historical facts that have stood the test of time and haven't been refuted. 
Every so often another idea comes around, oh, Jesus swooned on the cross. Seriously? Roman soldiers, they killed him. They were good at it. They knew what they were doing. He didn't swoon. He, he was dead. But he rose from death and people saw him. People saw him so much that they were willing to die for it. That says something about their, their foundation of their belief. The one for me, the killer, is that his mum and his brothers worshipped him as God. My mum is here today. She loves me. She doesn't worship me as God. I have two brothers. They love me. They do not worship me as God. The, the idea would be utterly ludicrous to them. Jesus' mother and brothers worshipped him as God. One of them died for it. Because he was God. It's rooted in historical facts. We've got you know, a bunch of kind of fairly illiterate peasants changed the world. You know, there's about a billion Christians in this world and they started with a few... You know, 12 that Jesus picked and one of them messed it up. And suddenly we have this worldwide thing called the church. It is rooted in historical fact and Paul is bringing it back to that when he just talks about Jesus. But he's saying, you've learnt Christ. And I kind of challenge here today, I don't know how you view church, I don't know what your image is when you think of church. What is church like? Is church a family that you can kind of be a part of, a community that you can be a part of? You see it as an army advancing um, for the kingdom of God. You see it uh, as a place just to be kind of welcomed in and looked after, more of a hospital where you can kind of find healing because you've been damaged. And all of those images I haven't got a problem with, but actually, do you add to that school? There is a schooling element. Do you come to, are you part of church to learn? Because actually, that's what this very much is. Even in our small group settings, more informal settings, there is a learning element that we should be growing and learning from one another learning from experiences we have as we rub up against one another, practical outworkings when we have conflict and then we make up from that, that we learn and look up from others' lives of how they follow Jesus and we just grow as a result where we can confront one another and challenge one another, spur them on to greater things. But there is very much a schooling element um, to what we do as a church. And if you reflect back on your Christian walk, however long it's been, if you pick a period in the past and you examine it and you examine yourself now, can you actually see growth? Can you see, well, I was like that then and I'm like this now. There's a difference. And a good difference, I mean. <laughs> you can have bad differences, can't you? Let's say it's going up. You know, like a plant. A plant grows, doesn't it? You know that, the weeds in the garden. They just grow and grow and grow. Are you like that? Are you growing? Can you see growth in yourself? Because my challenge to you is that you are, you've learned Christ and you've learned it from the initial proclamation you became a Christian, but there's an ongoing thing, and we are to continually learning and growing in it, um, because that's what Paul wants to do. There's the schooling element. So he says, don't walk that way. You've been taught, you've learned, you've got to grow. And then finally, he talks about clothing, which is the the last sort of section there. And this is quite a a well-known part of Ephesians. And he talks about putting something off, he talks about being renewed, and he talks about putting something on. So there's putting off and putting on, and in the middle, in verse 23, there's kind of this renewing process. So, um, verse 22, it says, um, you were taught, uh, Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, we have put on, put off, be renewed, put on. Put off and put on, in the way it's written in the original language, is, is they are one-off events. So there's something that's happened. 
like um, if you take off an item of clothing, to ta you take it off and it's off. It's done. You know, you take off your jumper, take off your shoes, and when you put something on, you put it on, it's done, it's completed. But in the middle, the bit where it's talking about being renewed, that's actually written as a continual process. Present continual, the way the verb is. You've got two complete actions, and in the middle, you've got an ongoing action. And we'll see the relevance as we come, um, go through. So in the clothing, first one, it says, put off. When you become believers, there is a fundamental break with your past. It's like taking off an old, tatty, worn garment, a coat, and throwing it away. And it's a significant image because at that time there were many cults and religions and initiation into those religions, those cults, those things would actually involve putting on um, garments, clothes. So as part of the you becoming, being initiated and brought in, you would put something on to signify that you've come into something, like I guess like a uniform, a cloak or something. And so when Paul is saying, take it off, is actually getting at that and saying whatever you were involved in, this old way of life, whether you actually had physically done it or it was kind of just a, a life that you'd got into, take it off, throw it away, get rid of it, um, put it to the side. But what, what he's actually saying is don't put off an item of clothes. You're actually, what you're putting off is a person. You. Put off you. Put off your old self, which is a little bit more you know, problematic. How do you take off you? You know, taking off your jumper's all right, but he's saying take off your old way of life. The whole personality that was ruled by sin, it says in chapter 2, it was, um, it was dead, it was corrupted, it followed the pattern of this world, prince of the power of the air, the devil. We looked at that, he says get rid of that, put off your old way. Um, and the, you know, the, te the theological term there would be total depravity. What that means is that before we became believers, every part of our Every part of our kind of being from the mind, will and emotions is corrupted um, by sin. So nothing, nothing is kind of good. It doesn't mean we can't be good, but what it means is everything is affected in some way um, to, um, by it. But when we become in Christ, we've been remade new. We have a new spirit within us, creating the light, righteousness and holiness, so we can pursue new desires. No longer do we have the bias towards sinners. That's been removed. We now have a bias towards holiness. So our old, evil, corrupted desires, they've been put away from us. And he's saying, as, they, as the bias has been taken away, like in a bowls ball, the bias pushes you one way. That's now gone. He said, don't go back there. Because you can still choose to go back there, as we can all testify. We've all gone back to old habits, old ways. But he's saying, put it off. Get rid of it. Get away from it. It's gone. Act like it's gone. Push it away. Don't deal with it anymore. Don't pursue it. And then he's saying, put on. Oh, no, sorry. He's saying, be renewed is the next thing. And it's interesting, what does he talk about? Your mind. This all comes back to what you think, what's going on in, inside you, what you're understanding, which is great when you think about the schooling image. It's trying to instruct us in our thinking. And he's saying, you now have to be renewed. And this is the continual process. So your old break with your past has been done. God has dealt with that. Put it, but Paul's saying, put it off. Get rid of it. He says, now continually grow and change and learn and understand more and more. So this is the continual process that will last throughout your Christian life till the day you die. It's never going to end. Um, I remember my dad saying when I kind of left school and it was kind of finally finished with exams, you know, it's done, no more flipping exams the rest of my life. And my sage father said something like, you'll never stop learning. And I thought, 
And you thought, well, I don't care. Don't want to do any more exams. I don't want to do any more school. Had enough. I've done it. Um, and yeah, he was right. Um, and we're the same. We have to continually grow, grow and learn and understand more and more. And that's a process that we're in. And we just have to kind of understand that as believers, actually, that we're here to learn and grow more and more. It's not something... We don't get saved and then think, oh, sit and do nothing. We actually now, by the grace that's been given us and what God has done in our life, we can be fueled forward to learn and grow more and more in him and not stay in the same place. And then lastly, he says, put on. Put on something. If you've taken off something, put it on, which is um, an expression there. And there's an individual and corporate element. There's something that we should do as individual believers. It's not my responsibility, it's your responsibility. There's also a corporate hour, the church's responsibility to grow um, and move forward because he uses the same expression. He describes the one new man in Christ growing. Um, actually, there is, so there's this corporate element. And we are a new creation, the Bible says, that we, God has done a divine work in us by taking something off us um, and doing something to us, creating us in his image, we are now to respond to that and move forward. And so this pattern that we've kind of been brought into is that we need to understand to put on the things that we've done, which is the whole first three chapters of Ephesians. What do we put on? Well, everything Paul's been talking about. You just have to go back and reread those things that we've been chosen and we've been adopted and we've been declared not guilty and we've been raised up and seated with Christ and we've been remade in the image of God, true righteousness and holiness. We've received the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our future. We've been brought into the church. We've made this one new man. We are reconciled to one another. There are no divisions between us despite our gender and our background and our culture and our language and our ethnicity. We've been brought together and we're to put that on. Paul says in chapter 2 that as a result of that we are to do good works that he's prepared for us. And so actually there's there's an outworking of that. We're to live in that manner. Go back to chapter 4 verse 1. Live in the manner worthy of the calling that you have received. And so there's a putting off of your old way of life, just rejecting it, not going after it. But there is an active pursuing of what God has done um, in our lives. And we kind of, out of that we work. Out of that we move forward. Out of that we, we go after what God has done. And the battleground for this is our minds. It begins in your head. begins between your ears that what God has done we have to grasp and understand. We have to learn and grow. Which comes back to... Why do we preach the Bible every week? Why do we encourage you to read your Bible every day? You know, however that works for you, um, in whatever kind of program you're in or what system you use, but actually getting into it, prayerfully understanding it, applying it to your life, finding areas of your life that think God said, I don't want that, so we repent of sin and we move on. Find things in here that actually I want to start doing. I want to start moving in those things because God has commanded us to do those things. And so we have the kind of putting off, but the putting on in our life as we walk forward. And that is what God has called us to do. That's what he's called us to do. All right, let's do um, a little bit of homework um, and then uh, we will finish. The first one is the put off and putting on. I want us just to have a little think about this and I, I want to commit to you kind of an exercise. I'd love you to do this week. And bear in mind the battleground is in our heads, in our mind. I'd love you to put off and put on every day this week. Now, I'm assuming every morning you've got to get up and get dressed before you go out and do whatever you do in the day. Or you might end up getting fired or something like that. So, you, so some sort of process of getting ready has to occur in your life in the morning, I'm assuming, unless you sleep in your clothes. Um, in that case, we need to have a chat afterwards. But 
there is that process. At some point in the morning, you've got to get dressed and get ready um, to go out into the day. And what I'd love you to do is just do the exercise of, in that process of taking a moment and putting off things and putting on things. So first one is that you've got to take stuff off, put stuff off, which means, I think, examine your life and think, ask God, is there anything I need to put off? Attitudes, things I've maybe done the, the previous day, um, thought patterns I've had, things I've said, things I've seen, that I just need to say, I'm going to put that off. I'm going to repent of my sin. If that's involved, I'm going to confess it, ask for forgiveness. I'm going to put it off. Even if there are things you're tempted with or that come into your life, think, I'm going to put that off. I'm not going to pursue that this day. Um, whatever it is. And, you know, life offers many opportunities to go back to our old way of life. Getting involved in gossip in the workplace and you know, bitching about the boss and, and all those kind of things and thought patterns and things come into our mind that we can actively pursue. Fantasies of revenge on people who've wronged us and all that kind of stuff. And so you start with a let's put off. If there's anything, ask the Holy Spirit who's in you, is there anything I need to put off today? Attitudes thoughts. And it's going to, it only has to take a moment. And so you're putting off the old man, the old way. And then you need to put something on. And I think the best way to do that is to put on, is to actively remind yourself of what God has done in your life. Actually, and Joe actually spoke, touched on this last week about our identity in Christ and what God has done with us. And actually he talked about some of those things. But it's good to remind ourselves. You can use Ephesians 1-3 to to help you if you've got a list. But actually remind yourself God chose me before the foundation of the world to be one of his children. He's my father in heaven and he loves me. I've been declared not guilty before God and I can come to him at any time and ask for a make a request of him. I'm actually righteous and holy because of what Jesus has done. I've been saved. I am part of the church which is God's plan for the world. I've got the Holy Spirit in me as a deposit guaranteeing what's going to come in my future. I can even ask now, God, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? I can ask that. I know God has got good works prepared for me this day to do. It says that in Ephesians 2. So I can say, God, reveal those to me as I go through the day, these good works. So what you're doing is you're putting on things for that day, like clothes that you're going to put on. You're actually putting on attitudes and actions which are starting with your mind, which is what Paul's been getting at. And once you've got things in your mind, that's then going to flow out into outworking into touching the world. If there are specific things, it would be good to, you know, you want to pray into things, actually help me with this, a colleague, a friend, a situation. Bring them towards God and put on good attitudes towards them. Give me peace if I'm going into a stormy situation. Give me patience when I deal with that client customer who just pushes my buttons. Or when, you know, the children are winding me up that many times. Give me patience to deal with that. Give me courage to challenge and face down when I see injustice and wrong. In, this, you know, in whatever the situation you find yourself in. So you're putting off and you're putting on at the beginning of every day, just following Paul's instructions. So I challenge you this week to have a go at that. It's kind of battle with your mind and actually put off and put on stuff every day before you go into the day and then see what the results are. Maybe at Life Group this week you can have a chat if you've done it, ask anyone else if they've done it and just see what the results are. So you're putting off and you're putting on and as that process is happening, you're actually continually being renewed, just like Paul said. You know, you're enjoying what's been off, you're enjoying what's been put on, and there's a renewal process going on. Second thing, um, in terms of the instruction about um, being at school, instruction about Jesus, I'd just encourage you to read books on Jesus. If you look at what you read, and we all read, 
and some might think they read more than us, but with the newspapers and the internet and smartphones, we all read lots of stuff. And if you look at the diet of what you read, how big is the diet on the person and work of Jesus Christ? Because I would submit to you as believers, and as what it said here about learning Christ, that should be a fair-sized proportion of your dietary reading. And I remember I read a book about four or five weeks ago, and actually it challenged me on this particularly. And I, 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 then I felt a bit, ooh, okay, well, let's look at what I read, you know, including when I read news websites and my you know, geeky comic sites and about the new films that are coming out and all this sort of stuff. I thought, actually, if I tot it up, I don't think it's actually that as big as I'd like it to be. And so I challenge you to read books on the person and work of Jesus. I've got, if, you're, if you're unsure, I've got a couple of recommendations. Here. You don't have to follow these, but these are, um, these are ones that I'm doing. Here's a small one. If, you're a, if you think, start with small books because then you finish it and feel better. Here's a small one I recommend you. It's called The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. Look, it's really thin. I mean, it's only got about 170 pages, but it's an excellent book. No, I haven't gone it. It's got about 90 pages. I mean, that's brilliant. I've, you've just lost 80 pages there, you know. And you can read this. Cross-Centered Life, I've read this. This is my copy um, lots of times, and uh, it's just a good one to just bring your focus back onto Jesus. If you're going to learn, learn Christ, let's learn him, uh, alongside uh, kind of reading the Bible. Another one would be, I don't have the books here because it's a general run, anything by Max Licardo. I've read about eight of his. And they're always all about Jesus. I don't know if he can write anything else, which is probably a good thing for an author. But he's just written hundreds of these kind of paperbacks that whenever I've read them, my affections have been stirred for Jesus. And they're very easy to read. They're kind of sort of devotional. They're not long chapters. They don't try to blind you with theology or language. He just points you to Jesus. If you've read anything by Max Ocado, um, I looked on my shelf today. They're just like Jesus is a good one, next door saviour, and there are numerous others. But they're just great ones to push you back to Jesus. And if you're really up for a challenge, uh, read The Cross of Christ by John Stott. I've read this once, um, and it's fantastic all about the cross and why we value it and Jesus in it. And I, I was so challenged having read that book a few weeks ago that I thought, I'm going to read it again. And so there's my bookmark and I'm that far in. I read a few pages a day. Um, and so I realised I need to, if I'm going to learn Jesus, I need to learn it. And I, having read the book, and I, went, I got it 2004, um, I read it then, I thought, I'm, I'm reading it again thinking, okay, I've forgotten this. I need to relearn this. I need to understand this again and again. And so just getting that kind of thing uh, back into your diet, I just encourage you in that terms of learning Christ, being school, they're good ways to go forward and you will not, um, you will not waste time you've invested in that, uh, just learning. So in your own reading time, on the bus, on the train, at home, in, in bed, invest in a book and take the next month or two to read it and learn Jesus in there. All right, we are going to stop today. Um, I hope that was helpful. Um, Matt, do you mind going and telling the kids that they are ready to come back in.